Hello and welcome to In Control, the first podcast on control theory. Here we discuss the science of feedback, decision-making, artificial intelligence, and much more. I doubt that there is a person in the audience who does not know of Dr. Wiener as the author of cybernetics, as an eminent mathematician. And so perhaps it would be more appropriate to introduce the audience to Dr. Wiener. I'm your host, Alberto Padoan, live from a recording studio at ETH Zurich. Quick thanks to our sponsor, the National Center of Competence in Research on Dependable Ubiquitous Automation and the International Federation of Automatic Control. Today, our episode will be about one of the giants of our field. Today, we're going to talk about Norbert Wiener. He was an American mathematician and philosopher and also early child prodigy that made incredible contributions to mathematics, uh, physics, uh, engineering, computer science, biology, neuroscience, and even philosophy. Norbert Wiener is credited as being one of the first to theorize that all intelligent behavior was the result of feedback mechanisms. As a very cheap proxy for his achievements, check out the Wikipedia page on list of things named after Norbert Wiener. I should probably make a big disclaimer before we start this episode because trying to make any episode that is contained within the boundaries of a podcast format for such an influential figure is an impossible task. So today, essentially, I'm going to give my own personal and control theoretic slant over Wiener. There are a number of important biographies and even an autobiography written by Wiener himself. I'm going to list all of these references in the show notes later. There are many ways to start this episode, but I thought that an important digression before we actually delve into Wiener's life is about his father, and that's Leo Wiener. Leo Wiener played an incredibly important and sometimes a not so easy role in the life of Norbert Wiener. So it's important to understand who his father was. So Leo Wiener was essentially born in Russia from a Jewish family and uh, born in 1862. And he was just like his son, a genius. By the age of 13, he was already supporting himself by tutoring people, having learned a number of languages that is mind-blowing. He knew German, Russian, French, Italian, Greek, and Latin. He then moved to Poland and picked up Polish, and then moved to Berlin again to train as an engineer. He wasn't really content with that career, and so while picking up Serbian and Greek, uh, modern Greek, on the way, he decided as a 17-year-old that he wanted to establish a commune in South America. So he renounced for good the use of tobacco, alcohol, meet and embarked on this journey to the Americas. As an 18-year-old, he landed in New Orleans in 1880, all by himself, with just 50 cents in his pockets. On the way, he learned also English and Spanish. And so just like a Mark Twain character, he worked in a factory on the railway and then turned to farming in Florida and Kansas. But through a number of encounters and also due to his talent for languages, at some point, he managed to be appointed the first Slavic languages chair in the United States in 1920 at the University of Harvard. By some of his colleagues, he is described as an eccentric character, remembered as, and I quote, an iconoclast spreading light and havoc. 
His religious attitudes were agnostic and humanistic, and he had a broad knowledge of all natural sciences, including mathematics, uh, which he was quite an expert. And Norbert Wiener, his son, only managed to surpass him pretty much at college time. The mom of Norbert Wiener was small, healthy, and a vigorous, vivacious woman. She had a very hard task, uh, and I quote now Norbert Wiener from his autobiography, of reducing his brilliant and absent-minded father with enthusiasm and hot temper to an acceptable measure of social conformity. So Norbert Wiener was born from Leo and Bertha in Columbia, Missouri. He grows up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and by the age of six, he's already able to read freely. So much so that at the age of eight, he's overused his eyes so much that he was threatened by myopia. Leo realized that what the boy needed was something challenging and interesting, and so he removed him from school and placed him under his own tutelage with courses in algebra, classical languages, uh, supported by many other readings of classical books. This continued for about two years, after which Norbert re-entered school at the age of eight. Leo's methods were quite uh, exceptional, And it's funny to mention that when he was taught at home, Norbert was fumbling in algebra or grammar. And whenever that happened, his father was turning, and I quote, from a gentle and loving father into, quote, an avenger of blood. <laughs> Leo also writes about his teaching methods in 1911 in an article called New Ideas in Child Training, the following. It is nonsense to say that, as some people do, that Norbert and Constance and Bertha are unusually gifted children. They are nothing of the sort. If they know more than the other children of their age, it is because they have been trained differently. Here, Constance and Bertha are Norbert's younger sisters. So, in the autumn of 1903, at the age of eight, Norbert resumes school at Higher High School, near his new home. It is interesting that because of his precocity, he was placed in a class with boys that were seven years older than him. So during playtime, he had to go to another school to find compatible playmates that were still two or three years older than him. Anyways, Norbert manages to get a high school degree at the age of 11 in 1906. So his father Leo decides to send young Norbert, again at the age of 11, to Tufts College in Boston in 1906. Norbert performs incredibly well, uh, even during his bachelor, and obtains a BA in mathematics, cum laude, in 1909, at the age of 15. He has fond memories of those years, and a good deal of his studies not only consisted in mathematics, but also many extracurricular experimentation and reading, especially in philosophy. He was really, really fond of Spinoza and particularly Leibniz. So in the fall 1909, Norbert decides to enroll for a graduate student in Harvard's zoology department with the intention of obtaining a doctorate. It should be stressed that this was his first own decision and unfortunately nothing really came out of it. We have to recall that he had really bad eyesight He was manually quite clumsy, so that didn't really help with uh, histology classes, and his drawings were pretty poor. So at the end of the day, he didn't really perform well. So after one semester, 
Leo, the father of Norbert, decided to intervene again, sending him to Sage School of Philosophy at Cornell University. It was during this year that Norbert found about being a Jew. This is something that struck him quite deeply because it had been withheld from him by his parents, whose views were pretty anti-Semitic. Understandably, his performance is not really good, and this setback essentially triggers another intervention of his father, which removes him from Cornell University and redirects him to Harvard, this time to the philosophy department. Norbert receives a PhD from Harvard in June 1913, at the mere age of 19. This event is also accompanied by incredibly good news, that he had been granted an overseas traveling fellowship by Harvard University. The fellowship is actually an incredible gift to Norbert because it leads him to the first step towards emancipation from the paternal figure. Norbert decides to use his Harvard fellowship to study uh, mathematical philosophy at the University of Cambridge in the UK under Bertrand Russell, a giant in the field at the time, whose work on his thesis had been based. Russell at the time was a lecturer in the principle of mathematics and had just completed the monumental epoch-making Principia Mathematica together with his colleague Alfred North Whitehead. As I mentioned, Wiener describes this period of his life as true emancipation, essentially because he was on the other side of the ocean and so his father was not entirely capable of interfering with his life. However, we should actually mention that it was due to his father that Wiener obtained this opportunity. I'm going to quote now a letter that the father sent to Bertrand Russell in order to obtain the opportunity to collaborate between the two. We see a lot of Leo's personality again in this letter and in the way he trained Norbert. Listen to what he says. Norbert graduated from college, receiving his BA at the age of 14 not as a result of premature development or of unusual precocity, but chiefly as the result of careful home training, free from useless waste, which I am applying to all of my children. Leo later adds, I mention all of this to you that you may not assume that you are to deal with an exceptional or freakish boy, but with a normal student whose energies have not been misdirected. Again, here you see much of Leo's personality and how much of an important figure he has been in the life of Norbert. Anyways, Norbert manages to enter Cambridge University in the autumn of 1913. Immediately, Wiener decides to follow Russell's advice, not just to concentrate on the foundations of mathematics, but also to find out where its different branches were going. So he attends lectures from incredibly influential mathematicians of the time, like Baker, Mercer, Littlewood, and in particular, Hardy. By far, Hardy was one of the most influential figures for Wiener, at least in academic terms. This is what he says in his autobiography. In all my years of listening lectures in mathematics, I've never heard the equal of Hardy for clarity, for interest, or for intellectual power. If I am to claim any man as my master in my mathematical training, it must be G. H. Hardy. We shall see later that Norbert was profoundly influenced by Hardy in a very concrete way in terms of research. But at this point, he follows Russell's advice. 
So he starts to approach mathematical philosophy from a wider angle and decides not to focus just on the foundations, but also to look at the frontiers of mathematics and theoretical physics. So during this period in Cambridge, he not only gets in contact with Hardy and his work on complex analysis as well uh, real analysis, but also he's exposed to Bohr's atomic theory. He reads about Gibbs' uh, work on statistical mechanics, and he enjoys uh, delving into the works of Einstein and Smolukovsky's paper on the Brownian motion. So during this time in Cambridge, uh, Russell, in the May term of 1914, had to move away for uh, other commitments. So Wiener decided to follow his advice again and relocate to Göttingen in Germany in order to deepen his studies of philosophy and mathematics. Wiener's activity is best summarized by Wiener himself in a letter that he wrote to Russell in June in 1914. At present, I'm studying here in Göttingen, following your advice. I'm here in a course on the theory of groups with Landau, a course on differential equations with Hilbert. I know it has precious little to do with philosophy, but I wanted to hear Hilbert. And three courses with Husserl, one on Kant's ethical writings, one on the principles of ethics, and the seminary on phenomenology, adding later in the letter, for this reason I have not done much original work this term. It is disheartening to try to do original work where you know that not a person with whom you talk about it will understand a word you say. We should mention at this stage that Wiener's mind was far from idle though, in these Göttingen days. Soon after his letter to Russell, he completed a paper on synthetic logic, which was to serve as the basis of this docent lectures at Harvard the following year. Wiener returned to the United States in August 1914 for a holiday. Unfortunately, during that time, World War I had broken out, but his Harvard Traveling Fellowship had been extended for the year 1914-1915, and so he decided to return to wartime England. The atmosphere had drastically changed. Going back to wartime, uh, and specifically World War I, Wiener uh, writes the following. It was embarrassing for me to meet the soldiers everywhere in the movies, in the streets, and even in the classrooms of the university, and to think that as a foreigner I was immune to the universal sacrifice. Several times I thought of enlisting, but was deterred by the fact that after all it was not yet my war, and that to go into before my parents were ready to accept the situation would be in some sense a very serious disloyalty to them. Then too, with my poor eyesight, I was not exactly the best soldier material. Nor did I desire to sacrifice my life for a cause concerning the merits of which I was not yet fully convinced. Norbert later changed his mind as the US got closer to the war, trying to enroll repeatedly and failing each time. Having failed in all his efforts to join the armed forces, Norbert decides to search for a job that is related to the war effort, and finally manages to be hired at the US Army Proving Grounds in Maryland. Wiener's stint as an army private was pretty painful uh, for Norbert, but also it had its funny sides. He writes that during sentinel duty, and I quote, found it hard not to drowse off and to keep sufficiently alert to challenge the officer of the day. World War I ended just days after Wiener's return to Aberdeen, and Wiener was discharged from the military in February 1919. After his discharge from the US Army in uh, February 1919, Wiener took a job at the Boston Herald as a reporter, 
in an attempt to shift towards the academic life again. He was asked to cover strike in the textile industry in Lawrence, Massachusetts, but he was very quickly fired after his reluctance to write favorable articles about a politician that the newspaper's owners sought to promote. So jobless again, he decides, upon the advice of Professor Osgood of Harvard, to apply for an opening at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, for the fall of 1919. At the time, the mathematics department was not oriented towards research, uh, there were only teaching positions, and so he accepts an offer for a one-year instructorship, even though formally he had no postgraduate degree in mathematics. We now come to a very important turning point in Wiener's researches, which shift from philosophical foundations of mathematics towards its superstructure. His interests shifted towards probability, integration, and analysis in general, due to him bumping into some books that didn't belong to him. In fact, it was his sister's fiancé, Gabriel Marcus Green, of Harvard Mathematics faculty, a very promising mathematician, who essentially lent him these books. These books were eye-openers to Wiener and no doubt encouraged him to swing towards analysis. Another uh, push in this direction came from Maurice Frechet at the Strasbourg Congress in the summer in 1920. The last push in this probabilistic direction came from Dr. Barnett of Cincinnati, who at the time was an American pioneer in abstract analysis. Barnett convinced Wiener that it was worth regarding probabilistic questions where events are curves or functions. For example, paths traced by a swarm of flying bees. Wiener made rapid progress, and in a note submitted to the National Academy of Sciences in 1921, Wiener clearly demarcated his concept of the Brownian motion stochastic process, proving many results now widely known as the non-differentiability of the paths. So the one-dimensional version of the Brownian motion today actually bears the name of Wiener, the Wiener process, because of this. This is one of the most well-known stochastic processes with stationary, statistically independent increments, and it occurs pretty much everywhere in pure and applied mathematics, as well as in physics and engineering and economics. During this time, Wiener not only works uh, on the Brownian motion, but also experiments with the theory of potentials. At the time, he was having conversations with uh, Kellogg from Harvard University, an authority on potential theory. And from these conversations, Wiener actually wrote six papers within a space of three years that revolutionized the field. The problem was in fact that of characterizing solutions of a Dirichlet problem with uh, very rough surfaces. The Dirichlet problem is effectively asking the question of how does temperature propagate in a room when we apply a certain temperature profile on its boundaries. And Wiener's great contribution in this respect was to show that no matter how the rough the surface was, the Dirichlet problem always had a solution, quote-unquote, in a genuine but non-classical sense. Despite generating some of the best mathematical work of this century between 1919 and 1924, Wiener had some trouble in gaining a promotion from the Department of Mathematics at MIT. During this period, all he got officially from MIT was an assistant professorship without tenure. This generated some miscontent in Wiener, and his uh, economic quest is perhaps best understood because, at the time, 
and there was a growing emotional attachment between him and the young lady of German descent named Margaret Engelmann. She was in fact a student of his father, Leo Wiener, in a course on Russian literature. And in fact, she became an assistant professor of modern languages at Junata College in Huntington, Pennsylvania. Norbert Wiener's courtship was intermittent, and it lasted for about two years. Again, this was partly due to economic reasons, but at last, in 1926, uh, Wiener writes this. The recognition I was receiving from Germany, together with an improved economic status at MIT consequent upon it, now for the first time made it possible for me to look for the responsibility of marriage in the face. So finally, Norbert and Margaret were married in Philadelphia in the spring of 1926, but unfortunately had to part away very soon because Norbert had to proceed to Göttingen again while she had to go to Huntington. The two were able to be rejoined only in Göttingen in the summer. Margaret's influence was a paradigm shift in the life of Wiener in terms of his relationship with his parents, his colleagues and his emotional life in general. He describes uh, himself as having, and I quote, a new personality as a married man. So soon after Wiener became, and I quote again, a very clumsy pupil in the art of babysitting as a family man. Wiener and Margaret have two daughters, Barbara and Peggy, and the improved economic status that Wiener had gained, unfortunately though, did not materialize. So in 1927, again with growing miscontent at MIT, still as an assistant professor, he decides to answer advertisements in the British magazine Nature for professorial positions, both in London and in Melbourne, Australia. This is quite an incredible anecdote, because his application for the Chair of Mathematics at the University of Melbourne in 1928 was unfortunately not successful, even though he had support letters from several of the world's leading mathematicians at the time, and this included Hardy, Hilbert and Cara Theodori. Finally, in 1929, MIT promoted him to an associate professorship. So young academics out there, don't give up. Due to his astonishing achievements, just three years later, he actually got a promotion to a full professorship. So finally, Wiener had all of uh, the freedom to let his pen reign supreme. We now come to one of Wiener's major contributions to mathematics and in general also to control theory as well, as a, a direct consequence, namely his contributions to harmonic analysis. Central to the idea of harmonic analysis is the fact that organization involves the recurrence of certain fundamental patterns. So we have harmonic analysis and harmonic synthesis. And in general, in both situations, the fundamental patterns are tones, pure tones, just like music, or for those who are familiar with Fourier theory, sinusoids. So this first venture, if you want, was stimulated by his engineering colleagues at MIT, who essentially primed him towards uh, giving a more rigorous aspect to the formal, to the operational calculus of Olivier Heaviside. As Wiener wrote, the brilliant work of Heaviside is purely heuristic, devoid even of the pretense of mathematical rigor. Its operators apply to electric voltages and currents, which may be discontinuous and certainly need not be analytic. 
The operational calculus, as Wiener says, was developed by Olivier Heaviside. He was an English self-thought mathematician and physicist who brought complex circuit analysis, invented a new technique for solving differential equations, and independently developed vertical calculus, rewriting how, at the time, Maxwell's equations were understood. Within operational calculus, there was a big problem, however, and this is perhaps best summarized by Wiener himself. Here is what he says about the solutions of certain differential equations. There are cases where U must be regarded as a solution of our differential equation in a general sense, without possessing all order of derivatives indicated in the equation, and indeed without being differentiable at all. It is a matter of some interest, therefore, to render precise the manner in which a non-differentiable function may satisfy, in a generalized sense, a differential equation. And so, in this landmark paper, named The Operational Calculus from 1926, Wiener anticipates what 20 years later would become the theory of distributions, developed by Laurent Schwartz. In fact, Schwartz says the following in a later note. Il est amusant de remarquer que c'est exactement cette idée qui m'a poussé moi-même à introduire les distributions. Translating from French, Schwartz essentially mentions that it is funny to note that it's exactly this idea that pushed me to introduce distributions. The paper of Wiener amusingly ends with the sentence Thus we have completely solved the telegrapher's equation for a semi-infinite line with given impressed voltages at the end. So it seems like this was uh, a one-time venture for Wiener. But his long-term relationship with electrical engineering was actually just at the beginning. So, motivated by problems in communication theory, Wiener continues exploring general harmonic generalized harmonic analysis and introduces the class of measurable functions with uh, a well-defined covariance function. These kind of functions are essentially persistent irregular signals. So using these functions, the first bit of generalized harmonic analysis that Wiener performs was to show that all the functions that have a well-defined covariance function actually are the fourier stilges transform of a bounded non-negative non-decreasing function. And he dubs uh, this uh, Fourier transform the spectral distribution of such functions. This is a very important result, not only in mathematics per se, which goes under the name of the Wiener-Kinchin theorem, but also has profound implications in uh, communications theory and control itself. Of course, Wiener doesn't really stop there and goes on and defines generalized Fourier transforms for wider classes of signals and develops Tauberian theorems that simplifying can be posed as follows. Suppose you have an, an ideal convolution filter with a given weighting function and you apply a certain input, let's say that it's bounded. You want to answer the question whether the output of this system will tend to a limit as t goes to infinity. And Wiener's Tauberian theorem actually provides solutions to these problems. With the appearance of publications first on generalized harmonic analysis in 1929 and subsequently on Tauberian theorems in 1932, Wiener was recognized as a master in these fields and was awarded the Bocher Prize of the American Mathematical Society in 1933.
The following year, in April 1934, he was elected a fellow of the National Academy of Sciences in the US. And so these two works put him at the center stage of mathematics in the world. From 1922 to 1927, we should say that Wiener traveled extensively to Europe, practically every summer. During the 20s, his work was actually much better appreciated in Europe than in America. And he got considerably more encouragement from mathematicians abroad than he did at home. So after a brief stint in quantum mechanics, uh, where he explored quantum physics uh, with Born, and the philosophical interlude stimulated by Haldane and inspired by Leibniz, Wiener started two very important collaborations with uh, German astrophysicist Eberhard Hopf and British mathematician Raymond Paley, both of which have profound consequences for control theory and communication theory. Let's start with Hopf. So, after the appearance of Birkhoff's paper in 1931 on the individual ergodic theorem, the young German mathematical astrophysicist from Potsdam Observatory, Eberhard Hopf, came to Harvard to study ergodic theory. Wiener was quite excited about Birkhoff's discovery and therefore started interacting with Hopf. What emerged from their conversations, however, was not something related to ergodicity, but a method to solve an integral equation that had appeared in the theory of radiative equilibrium in the stars. This method today is known as the Wiener-Hopf equation. It plays a fundamental role in uh, control theory. Wiener didn't stop there. He was literally on fire. And in between 1931 and 1932, during a visit at Cambridge University, where he was acting as Hardy's deputy, giving lectures on Fourier theory, he had contacts with uh, several researchers. The contact that proved most creative from a research point of view, and most rewarding as well, was that with uh, Raymond Paley, a young researcher at Trinity College at the time, a mathematician and alpinist who had an incredible admiration for Littlewood. So, Paley and Wiener started discussing the grey area between real analysis and complex analysis, first in England, then in Zurich during the International Congress of Mathematicians, and finally at MIT, when Paley got a British Commonwealth Fellowship between 1932 and 1933. At MIT, Paley and Wiener worked on the analytical properties of the Fourier transform in the complex domain. And one of the most important engineering applications that Wiener developed together with Paley was the so-called Paley-Wiener criterion for physical realizability, or if you wish, causality of a linear time invariant filter. Essentially, the criterion specifies conditions under which a linear time invariant filter, described by the absolute value of this uh, frequency response. Unfortunately, at the age of 26, Paley dies tragically in a skiing accident. Paley's death was a severe blow to Wiener, and it took him some time to come back to a mental state that would allow him to work effectively. Perhaps a bit more exciting for the control community, though, is Wiener's venture into the development of an analog computer program at MIT. He finally had the opportunity to get his hands dirty with electrical engineering in his excitement over the computer building program at MIT from the mid-20s to the 1940s, executed under the leadership of Vannevar Bush. This program had three main objectives. To build a network analyzer, which served to solve algebraic equations. 
The second objective was to build an intergraph, which effectively was designed to solve convolution integrals, so integrals that depended on a parameter. And finally, a differential analyzer for solving differential equations. All three were to be analog machines. So numbers had to be represented by measured physical quantities rather than by digits on a computer. Wiener was truly fascinated by Bush's program and his close touch with it significantly molded his thought. His interest in the fabrication of thinking machines had begun in college when he studied Leibniz's ideas on the question and he had used computers during the army service at Aberdeen Proving Grounds. Wiener's first contribution in this field came in his advice on the continuous intergraph. It was essentially, as I mentioned, a machine that was designed to solve integrals that were depending on our parameters. So pretty much integrals that represented convolutions. After developing this machine around 1929, Wiener then became interested in the synthesis of linear electric networks, the performance of which were prescribed a priori. This is very much a problem that is related to the realization problem in control theory and goes under the name of network synthesis. The idea here is that you want to use the least amount of electric components in order to uh, be cost-effective and also more efficient. The basic idea was to regard this physical realization problem as that of constructing a rational transfer function via a minimum number of electrical components. These ideas were very tentative in Wiener's mind, and he needed some kind of a system to translate these ideas into a metallic form, a physical form. So he approached Bush to put him in touch with a good student, and Bush himself suggested Jung Vic Li, an engineering student from China. Li was not only able to assimilate Wiener's suggestion, but he actually succeeded in implementing an efficient arrangement of the cascade, which secured the best utilization of hardware. This came to be known later as the Lee-Wiener network, a pioneering achievement in the field of network synthesis. Lee completed a doctoral dissertation on the topic, which was published in 1932 under the title of Synthesis of Electric Networks by Means of Fourier Transforms and Laguerre's Functions. The Lee-Wiener network plays a crucial part in Wiener's war work in the 1940s on anti-aircraft fire control, as we shall see and also in his later work on the analysis and synthesis of arbitrary time-invariant black boxes, something that is very much at the heart of control theory even today. It is worth pausing at this point of Wiener's life because here we have the first indication of Wiener being actively interested in the concept of feedback, which is so central for control theory. This was to play such a vital part in his later thought and work, so it's worth quoting directly from his autobiography. What Lee and I had really tried to do was to follow in the footsteps of Bush in making an analog computing machine, but to gear it to the high speed of electrical circuits instead of to the much lower one of mechanical shafts and integrators. The principle was sound enough and in fact had been followed out by other people later. What was lacking in our work was a thorough understanding of the problem of designing an apparatus in which part of the output motion is fed back again to the beginning of the process as a new input. What I should have done was to attack the problem from the beginning and develop on my own initiative a fairly comprehensive theory of feedback mechanisms. I did not do this at the time and failure was the consequence. 
So as we see, this is really the first time where Wiener actively thinks about feedback and really puts this concept at the center stage of his research directions. Unfortunately, during that time, the political storm clouds were forming because of World War II. Scientists were being evicted for racial or political reasons and many had to flee their country due to fascism and Nazism. So Wiener became a member of the China Aid Society and also of the Emergency Committee in Aid of Displaced German Scholars. And he was interested in placing scholars such as Jung Vic Lee, as we just mentioned, or Antony Zygmunt, who had lost their positions. In the run-up to World War II, Wiener was drawn to military projects involving anti-aircraft technology. This is beautifully described from the beginning of chapter 14 of Mazarny's biography of Wiener, which I'm going to quote directly. Soon after the shelving of his computer project, Wiener was drawn into the study of the control of servo mechanism that was carried out by engineers at MIT. His work during World War II grew from a suggestion he made to the servo engineers in early November 1940 that networks with frequency responses of a certain kind into which the positional data of an airplane's flight trajectory is fed might provide the means for evaluating its future locations and so assist in the improvement of anti-aircraft fire. Anti-aircraft fire was a problem of tremendous military importance at the time because of German air superiority over England. The problem of anti-aircraft fire control is different from similar problems in ballistics because the speed of the target, the airplane, is a substantial fraction of that of the missile fired at it. So to score a hit, the gun must actually aim at future positions of the airplane. The future path of the airplane has to be, therefore, extrapolated from its past observations. The extrapolation must be done at a high speed with a computer and aiming and triggering done automatically. So in brief, the gunner and his range computation tables have to be supplanted by a speedier and more accurate automation that does its own rather tracking, anticipating, aiming and firing. So in order to work on this project, in January 1941, an engineer from IBM, Mr. Julian Bigelow, was assigned to assist Wiener in his work. As Wiener wrote in his final report, Bigelow not only turned out to be of considerable help in the theoretical work as well as in numerical computations, but, and I quote, his assistance was greatest and indeed indispensable in the design of apparatus and in particular in the development of the technique of electric circuits of long time constant. The significance of the project for control theory as a whole cannot be understated. The project led to the appearance of a classified monograph in February 1942 titled The Interpolation, Extrapolation of Linear Time Series and Communication Engineering, which was affectionately nicknamed the Yellow Peril by the engineers because of its yellow cover and because it was abstruse and very difficult to read. The significance uh, of this work is also summarized very nicely by Jung Wickley, the PhD student that Norbert Wiener worked that we mentioned just briefly before. Wiener's theory of optimum linear system is a milestone in the development of communication theory. The problems of filtering, prediction and other similar operations were given a unity in formulation by the introduction of the idea that all have in common an input and a desired output. Then the minimization of a measure of error, which is absent in classical theory, was carried out. 
the entire theory from its inception to the final expressions for the system function and the minimum mean square error is invaluable to the communication engineer and in the understanding of many communication problems in a new light. It is interesting to note that the mathematical theory emerging from this very practical engineering motivation turned out to be equivalent to something that Komogorov in Russia was working on from a purely mathematical perspective. In his paper titled On Stationary Sequences in Hilbert Space, Kolmogorov places heavy emphasis on a fundamental theorem from 1938 of Wold of Sweden, of which Wiener did not know anything about. Kolmogorov's paper is written with a very meticulous attitude and thoroughness, in very sharp contrast to Wiener, which leaves many crucial details unanswered. What emerges, however, from Wold, Kolmogorov and Wiener together is what nowadays we call prediction theory. It is now time to turn our attention to a friendship that Wiener developed originally in 1933, but really came to play an important role uh, towards the end of the war. And that friendship is with uh, the philosopher Rosenbluth. So, as I mentioned, in 1933, that's exactly the same year in which, unfortunately, Raymond Paley dies, Wieners is introduced to Dr. Arturo Rosenbluth, a Mexican physiologist of Hungarian descent, trained at the Sorbonne in Paris and working with uh, Walter Cannon at Harvard Medical School. The interaction between Wiener and Arturo Rosenbluth and its importance cannot be understated. Wiener was essentially a regular participant in an interdisciplinary seminar on a scientific method which Rosenbluth was conducting at Harvard Medical School, titled The Philosophy of Science Club. Dr. Rosenbluth's interdisciplinary seminar at Harvard Medical School was connected with philosophical problems that actually affected the research of those who were attending. They were discussing issues like the mind-brain uh, dualism, and these problems were approached by incorporating very fresh neurological discoveries, so somehow with the scientific method. The role of this seminar, as I mentioned, in the birth of cybernetics and Wiener's life in general can be hardly exaggerated. Perhaps uh, Wiener's uh, description of Rosenbluth himself is that which summarizes best the warmest relationship that the two had together. This is what Wiener has to say about Rosenbluth from his autobiography. He had not started as a scientist, but as a musician, and had earned his living for some time by playing classical piano in a Mexico City restaurant. Arturo is also a first-rate chess player and a superb bridge player, so good that in neither of these games does he allow me to play with him. He is a great enthusiast for the climate and arts of his native land. He is a hard worker and he makes the greatest demands on the sincerity and industry of those about him, demands which are only exceeded by those he makes upon himself. So why am I mentioning all this relationship between Wiener and uh, Rosenbluth? Well, it's around this time that Wiener and Bigelow, while working on this aircraft technology, start to develop some kind of crazy idea. The fact that feedback occurs also in the human sensory and motor abilities. The principle that was guiding Wiener and Bigelow was, in fact, that pathology of an organ throws very great light on its normal behavior, to quote uh, Wiener's autobiography. The pathology was associated to machines through 
what at the time was referred to as hunting, in which excessive feedback effectively caused a mechanism to overshoot. The metaphor here is that of an elevator. An elevator goes into hunting whenever, instead of coming up smoothly to a stop, it goes up a little too much and overcompensates by going down too much, and so it keeps on oscillating until it stops. Here's how Wiener describes this. This negative feedback, however, has its diseases. There's a definite pathology to it, which was already discussed, you will be rather astonished at the date, in 1868 by the great physicist Clark Maxwell in a paper of the Proceedings of the Royal Society on Governors. If the feedback of the rudder or the governor is too intense, the apparatus will shoot past the neutral position a little more than it originally was passed on one side, will shoot still further past on the other, and will go into a hunting. Now, since we thought that the simplest way we could explain human control was by a feedback, we wondered whether this disease occurred. We went to our friend, Dr. Arturo Rosenblut, who was then Cannon's right-hand man at Harvard, and in the Harvard Medical School, the physiologist, with the following question. Is there any nervous disease known in which a person trying to accomplish a task starts swinging wider and wider and is unable to finish it? If, for example, I reach for my cigar, I suppose that the, ordinarily, the ordinary way I control my action is in such a way as to reduce the amount by which the cigar has not been picked up. If the feedback is excessive, I would expect to go into a swing of that sort. Is that disease known? The answer was, most definitely that disease is known. It has exactly the symptoms named. It occurs in uh, the pathology of the cerebellum, the little brain. It's known as purpose tremor or cerebellar tremor. Well, that gave us the lead. It looked as if a common theory could be given to account for the pattern of human behavior and control machine behavior, in this case, and that it depended on negative feedback. That was one of the leads that we had. The other lead went back to the study of the automatic control machinery. This important but small evidence was enough to convince Wiener and Bigelow that they were on the right track and that the neurophysiological system indeed functioned by negative feedback. So together with Rosenbloit, they write this famous paper called Behavior, Purpose and Teleology, in which they lay down the foundations of feedback acting on all purposeful behavior. The paper suggested that for the first time in history, that voluntary activity involved negative feedback, and that certain activities of servo mechanisms as well as of animals can be studied in a unified way by considering the goals of these activities. Here I'm going to quote again Wiener himself. The central nervous system no longer appears as a self-contained organ, receiving inputs from the senses and discharging into the muscles. On the contrary, some of its most characteristic activities are explicable only as circular processes, emerging from the nervous system into the muscles and re-entering the nervous systems through sense organs, whether they be proprioceptors or organs of special senses. This seemed to us to mark a new step in the study of that part of neurophysiology, which concerns 
not solely the elementary processes of nerves and synapses, but the performance of the nervous system as an integrated whole. These developments were groundbreaking and were laying the foundation of what would later become cybernetics, the science of control and communication in the animal and the machine. The late 40s witnessed frequent travels to Mexico, for which Wiener had a particular affection. Here is what he says about Mexico itself. Almost from the moment I crossed the frontier, I was charmed by the pink and blue adobe houses, the bright keen air of the desert, by new plants and flowers, by the indications of a new way of living with more gusto in it that it belongs to us inhibited North Americans. The high, cool climate of Mexico City, the vivid colors of the jacaranda blossoms and the bougainvilleas, the Mediterranean architecture, all prepare me for something new and exciting. The many times I've returned to Mexico have not belied these first impressions. It will be a sad day for me when I come to feel that I have no further chance to renew my contacts with that country and to participate in its life. But at the invitation of the Mathematical Society, he came in touch not only with Rosenbloit in the area of physiology, but also with uh, many of his colleagues. And so finally Wiener had the opportunity to explore his biological curiosities, which held dormant, if you remember from the beginning of this episode, since 1912, when he shifted from the study of zoology to that of philosophy. Finally, he could show, and I quote, what his teachers did not recognize. And despite that all, again, quote unquote, grievous fault, he might still have a contribution to make in biology. So, during these years, he started investigating the fibrillations in the heart, the generation of action potentials in the nervous system, and the complex synergy of brain, muscles, and sense organs, whose malfunctioning was hypothesized to generate pathologies like tremors. Perhaps one of his most interesting ventures in the realm of physiology were the investigations conducted with Pitts and Garcia Ramos. The goal of this team was to try and match electrical recordings obtained from the spinal cord of a cat with a piecewise linear model and dynamical partial differential equations which were trying to connect current along an axon with potentials inside and outside each cross-section of this spinal cord. This work was actually later superseded, four years later, by the more revealing non-linear partial differential equations for the ionic current due to Hodgkin and Axley for which they received a Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1963. The pioneering aspects of this investigation is worth stressing. It was the first time to bring in the field conceptions like continuous time and PDEs in axon theory, where, in fact, all of the focus at the time was on discrete behavior because of the all-or-none behavior of neurons. Anyways, as I mentioned, all of these experiences we're actually starting to coalesce into the opera magna of Norbert Wiener, namely cybernetics. In this so-called lay audience, there are many people, I'm certain, who have heard about his cybernetics second or third hand, and have heard that it has something to do with electronics, with machines, with human beings, and that there is something there of drawing a parallel and almost an identity between man and the machine. So influenced by, again, many other fruitful interactions in between with uh, John von Neumann at the Macy conferences, and also Warren McCulloch, one of the precursors of modern AI, 
In the summer of 1947, Wiener goes on and embarks on one of the most interesting journeys of his life. On the way to Nancy, in France, where he was to attend a conference on harmonic analysis, he bumps into a person that he later describes as one of the most interesting men I have ever met. We're talking about a representative, Monsieur Freeman, of the publishing house Hermann et C., which uh, essentially asked him to write a short book on the fundamental aspects of his work in communication and control. This person was the founder of the group of French mathematicians who published under the pseudonym Bourbaki, and who was given as a residence an imaginary university, the University of Nankago from Nancy and Chicago. So Wiener immediately felt that it would be fun to get in with such an interesting group, and so he accepted to write the book over a and I quote, a cup of cocoa in a neighboring patisserie. So in Mexico, late that summer, Wiener wrote the book, which he dedicated later to Arturo Rosenbluth. The book that I'm talking about, of course, is Cybernetics, or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. This is, we could say, the opera magna of Wiener, because it embodies all of its uh, research career condenses in a single book. The subject matter of Wiener's impending book was to be the theory of messages, and so he felt that a Greek word signifying message should make a good title. The only word that I was able to think, uh, at least for some time, was that of angel from angelos, because it literally means messenger. But unfortunately in English this word has a connotation that comes from messenger from God, so he abandoned the idea. So then for the title, he moved towards cybernetics, which he coined from the Greek kybernetes, uh, steersman. And uh, we actually encountered this word in the first episode of the podcast when we were talking about James Watt and governors. The name governor was in fact derived from kybernetes. Anyway, what was this uh, cybernetics all about? Well, this is perhaps best uh, summarized by Ashby. In the book An Introduction to Cybernetics, Ashby is perhaps uh, one of the most influential cyberneticists after Wiener and describes cybernetics as the general study of mechanism from the standpoint of functionality and behavior rather than internal structure and material. And what is meant here by mechanism is again best summarized by Wiener himself. For us, a machine is a device for converting incoming messages into outgoing messages. A message from this point of view is a sequence of quantities that represents signals in the message. Such quantities may be electrical currents or potentials, but are not confined to these, and may be indeed of a very different nature. Moreover, the component signals may be distributed continuously or discreetly in time. A machine transforms a number of such input messages into a number of such output messages. Each output message at any moment depending on the input messages up to this moment. As the engineer would say in his jargon, a machine is a multiple input, multiple output transducer. So clearly here Norbert Wiener sees cybernetics uh, as a method for solving problems, not really as a particular empirical subject matter. The concepts are always the same. There are signals, there are messages and noise. And these are related by the fact that a signal is always interpreted as a message plus some noise. Feedback, of course, plays a major role in this theory. 
and in designing machines that actually have a purpose. Of course, information also comes into play and therefore coding and decoding messages becomes a very influential problem in order to understand and minimize uh, the influence of noise. The fact that cybernetics actually embodies all of the span of Wiener's research is perhaps best illustrated by the table of contents. We see that Wiener starts from a very philosophical standing, from the difference between Newtonian and Bergsonian time, moving on to statistical mechanics and finally delving into communication theory, feedback and therefore control, but finally moving on towards the analogy with uh, the nervous system and uh, uh, pathologies arising in uh, neuroscience and finally going back to information. The cybernetics philosophy carries with it much more than just an appreciation of control and informational feedback. Among its key ideas, uh, we can list the following. First of all, there is a universality that assigns only a secondary status to the autonomy of different sciences. There is a recognition that intelligence extends to the inanimate world, so to machines as well in principle. There is an indeterministic causality, which we're going to talk about in a second, in which the universe is a cosmos, but of an incomplete order that permits what is called teleology, so purpose and freedom. And of course, there is a black box approach to inquiry, which to date hadn't been studied that well. Uh, I just want to pause now uh, briefly about the concept of time, which may come as something that is out of the blue in the book of uh, Wiener, but actually you should remember that Wiener was actually trained as a philosopher. So he makes a very clear distinction in his book about what he calls uh, Newtonian time and Bergsonian time. And in fact, this comes also from his investigations and interactions with physics. The law of increasing entropy imposes on events an ordering between past and future. And so, from this perspective, this law actually provides the foundation for the objectivity of anisotropy of time. Many phenomena that are of interest to Wiener rely on the anisotropy of time. For example, our memory consists in retaining the changes in the nervous structure brought on by stimuli received in the past and not in the future. Similarly, communication. We communicate primarily in order to bring our past experiences and knowledge to bear on the future course of events. So Wiener realized that our acknowledgement of the contingency of the cosmos demands an even more radical change in our conception of time. So Wiener really wanted to make a distinction between what he called Bergsonian time in contrast to Newtonian time when he wanted to emphasize this last aspect of time. An important concept simply inconceivable in Newtonian time was that of purpose, whereas in Bergsonian time a clear definition of purposive or what he called teleological mechanisms could be given. Similarly for learning. In learning, a system that may be living or non-living changes its pattern on the basis of a record it keeps on the effects on the environment. Perhaps at this point what is interesting is to reflect on why this discipline actually died away pretty much in the span of 10 or 15 years. Well, it is alleged, at least this is what Kelly uh, speculates in his book Out of Control, that cybernetics starved to death by siphoning away all of its funding to the hotshot field of artificial intelligence. In any case, after the war, Wiener became increasingly concerned with what he believed was political interference with uh, scientific research and the militarization of science. 
In an article titled Scientists Rebels from January 1947 in the Atlantic Monthly, he urged scientists to consider ethical implications of their work. After the war, for example, he refused to accept any funding from the government to work on military projects, and he moved on to explore all the consequences of cybernetics in the philosophical, social and political domain. Wiener died in March 1964 at the age of 69 in Stockholm from a heart attack. He's now buried in uh, New Hampshire, in Sandwich, in the Vitum Hill Cemetery. Before closing, I would like to spend a few words about the man that actually Wiener was. Levinson, so one of his PhD students, describes him as follows. If this picture of extreme kindness and generosity seems odd with Wiener's behavior on the other occasions, it is because Wiener was capable of childlike egocentric immaturity on the one hand and extreme idealism and generosity on the other hand. Similarly, his mood could quickly shift from a state of euphoria to the depths of dark despair. Wiener was famously absent-minded, a bit quirky, and he lent himself to easy anecdote. I'm going to quote a few stories that are attributed to Howard Eves. Here's one. One day he went to a conference and parked his car in a big parking lot, referring to Wiener, of course. When the conference was over, he went on to the lot but forgot where he parked his car. He even forgot what the car looked like, so he waited until all the other cars were driven away and then took the car that was left. He seemed to have a particular thing about cars, There's another funny anecdote concerning cars and Wiener. So once he had to drive 150 miles to a math conference at Yale University. And so when the conference was over, he actually forgot that he came by car. So he returned home by bus. And the next morning he went out to his garage to get his car, but discovered he was missing. So then he filed an actual complaint to the police that while he was away, someone stole his car. Wiener's vision extended far beyond the arena of philosophy, mathematics, physics, technology, and engineering. His far-reaching ideas embrace several areas of mathematical philosophy, relativity, quantum mechanics, communication engineering, computer theory and physiology, and of course, control theory. I would like to close with what the Bulletin of the American Mathematical Society dedicated as a special issue in January 1966 to Wiener. To the memory of Norbert Wiener, in recognition of his towering stature in American and world mathematics, his remarkably many-sided genius, and the originality and depth of his pioneering contributions to science. Thank you for listening. I hope you liked the show today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Follow us on Spotify, support on Patreon or PayPal, and connect with us on social media platforms. See you next time.